In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 115. This psalm has no title. That's why the title usually mentions the author of the psalm and the occasion in which actually this psalm was composed. But since this psalm has no title, then no evidence of who the author was, nor on what occasion it was written. Many scholars ascribed this psalm to various individuals. For example, some attributed to Moses and the Israelites when pursued by Pharaoh. Because this psalm actually speaks, as we're going to study together, why you are forsaking your people, why the pagan people rebuke us or humiliate us and say, where is their God? It can be ascribed to Moses. Others said it is written by the three young men in the furnace of fire in Babylon. Others said it is written by Mordechai and Esther when Haman distressed the Jews. Some attributed to the heroes at the time of Antiochus and the Maccabees. You can read this in Maccabees first and second. Some attributed the son to Jehoshaphat when a numerous army came against him. Some think it was composed just for use in the temple services after the return from the Babylonian captivity. Also, perhaps when they returned from Babylon, their enthusiasm had died away and the little community in Jerusalem realized how shamefully and weak they were in the eyes of their neighbors. When Israel was taken into captivity, there were few people remained in Jerusalem. These people who were in Jerusalem asked God, why you don't intervene? Why let people say, where is their God? Or perhaps it is written at a later time. But the mocking description of idols in verse 4, as we're going to study together, points rather to earlier time, when the memories of the Babylonian idolatry was still fresh in their mind. But most of the scholars attributed this psalm to David, which is more probable. David is the author of this psalm, though on what occasion it's not easy to say. Maybe David wrote it when he was insulted by the Jebusites, the story in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 6. This psalm is a liturgical psalm, and it is continuation of the collection of the Egyptian Halil Psalms. What's the Egyptian Halil Psalm? These are six Psalms from Psalm 113 to 118. And these Psalms actually called Halil because Hallelujah, praising God. Why called Egyptian? Because they remember the Exodus from Egypt and the wonderful work that God had done with the Israelites like splitting and dividing the Red Sea and how the Israelites crossed in the Red Sea. And these Halil, Egyptian Halil Psalms, they used to chant it during the Passover celebration. 
when you read about when the Lord celebrated the Passover with the disciples on the night of his crucifixion, you read that he praised with the disciples. Most probably the praises were these six psalms. That's why this psalm is one of the six psalms that was chanted by the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples on the night he was betrayed and arrested, the night before his crucifixion. In some translation versions like Septuagint or Vulgate Latin, this psalm is united with Psalm 114 as if one psalm. But the tone and the structure and the style of Psalm 114 and 115 are quite distinct and cannot originally have been one psalm. That's why in Hebrew version, it, these are two separate psalms. Also, it is a triumphal psalm, psalm of victory, in which victory gained is entirely ascribed to God Almighty. Any victory in our life, it's because of God. This psalm is 18 verse, 1 to 3, God alone is to be glorified. 4 to 8, the vanity of idols. 9 to 11, all who fear God are exhorted to trust Him. 12 to 16, the Lord's goodness and His gracious promises. 17 and 18, the dead cannot praise Him, so the living should praise Him. Verse 1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Psalm 114 spoke about the wonderful things that God did for his people on their departure from Egypt. Now, in the name of the people, the psalmist pray to God, not to regard their shortcoming, but his own glory and continue to protect his servant. So he's saying, we're asking you to protect us not because of us and not for our own glory, because we know of our shortcoming, but because of your name, to give glory to your name. So he's asking not for praise or glory on his own merits. We have done this, we have done that, that's why we ask you to protect us. No, because we have no merits when we stand before God. But to give glory to God's name, not unto us, not unto us, he repeated twice, but to your name give glory. So the psalmist understood that when God did wonderful things, the glory should be given to him, not to us, because we are not worthy of these wonderful things. God does them because he is good, because he is merciful, not because we are worthy. So the glory should go unto God, and his holy name. God is prayed to help Israel, not for their own sake, not to cover them with glory when they defeat their enemies will be glorified, no, but for his own sake, that glory may rest on his name and himself among the nations. That's why the words not unto us repeated twice, either to express the deep sense of personal unworthiness considered by the suppliant. I feel I'm not worthy 
when I'm asking you to protect us or to give me victory, I know not because I want my own glory, I am not worthy, but your name may be glorified. And maybe it was repeated twice to signify the blended prayer of the two great elements of the church, the Jews and the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are saying not unto us, and the Jews also saying not unto us. Then he is saying, because of your mercy, because of your truth, give glory to your name, because of your mercy, because of your truth. So the psalmist anticipated this manifestation of faithfulness with confidence. So God is faithful in his promises. He promised to deliver Israel. So he is saying, because of your truth, your promises are true. And your promises are not based on our worthiness, but based on your mercy. That's why I am praying that to give glory to your name, when you make us defeat our enemies, because you promised us that's truth, and because you have mercy upon us, not because of our worthiness. God's honor is concerned in delivering his people. So when God delivers his people, that God may be glorified in order to show that mercy has been the motive of his dealing with them. God, as St. Paul repeated several times, it's because of the abundance of his mercy and the multitude of his love toward us. And his truth also is not less concerned in fulfilling his promises made to them. If God promised something, he is truthful to fulfill it. Not only the promises of victory to Israel, but also the executing his threatened judgment upon the heathen who have not called upon his name. As God said, all these pagan people, God will punish them. According to St. Augustine, mercy and truth are often united together in the Holy Scripture. He says, in his mercy, God calls the sinner. And in his truth, he condemns those whom he calls, but they refuse to come to him. God gave glory to his name because he moves his people through gratitude and his enemies through fear to worship him. When God fulfills his promises, either the threatening to the enemies or the promises of goodness to the righteous, then the righteous will be grateful to God and the enemies will fear God. So both of them will be moved to worship God and that for the dear sake of his mercy and truth which are Jesus Christ. Mercy and truth are combined in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we read in John 1.17 the law was given by Moses but grace and truth, grace is mercy, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here St. John wrote the same idea of the psalmist and saw it perfectly fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
St. John Chrysostom says, God has one thing in view, the correction of sinners. Hence, he added, because of your mercy, because of your truth. That's help us, O God, for the sake of your mercy. Even if your glory among human beings, if no concern to you, but for the sake of your mercy and for the sake of, of your faithfulness. So as if he is saying, maybe God is not concerned about his name be glorified among the nations. But definitely God is concerned about the salvation of everyone. So he is saying, if you are not concerned about the glory of your name, but for the repentance of the sinners, your mercy will be revealed to the sinners and your promises, your truth will be fulfilled. But what is another reason why he said, give glory to your name? The second reason in verse 2, why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? So another reason why God ought to seek the glory of his name in preserving his people, that the Gentiles seeing God's people in a state of need. So when the Gentiles see God's people in a state of need, they will say, where is their God? If their God is alive, if their God is powerful, why he didn't deliver them? Lest they get an opportunity to diminish God's power and perhaps to deny his very existence. Who are the Gentiles, those who worshipped idols, who claimed that idols are true gods? So he's asking God, why do you allow them, why you give them any opportunity to say or think so by giving your people into their hands when your people are taking captives by their hands? Why should we, your people, be so left, so forsaken, so afflicted as to lead these idol worshippers to suppose that God whom we worship is needy of power or he is not, not faithful to his promises. Either he does not exist or that he cannot be relied upon. So the psalmist asked God to deliver his people so that he would be glorified among the nations and the Gentiles would have no reason to think God had forsaken his people. Because the devil continually until now attempts to stir doubt in the heart of the believers concerning God's care for them. We hear many people, where is God? God doesn't care about me. God does not love me. Why he allowed this to happen? The devil always does his best to portray God as residing in seclusion in his heaven, not caring for the affairs of men. That's what Satan is putting in our mind, that God is totally isolated from us, sitting in heaven, not caring about us. Man feels bitterness when non-believers reproach God as though he does not exist or as though he is helpless, has no power. The nations worshipped imaginary beings, the idols, 
and the projections of their own lusts and longing. But our God, the God of the covenant, God of Israel, is different. That's why in verse 3 he said, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. So he is powerful. If he is not doing anything right now, because this what pleases him, is for the best interest for all of us, even if we don't see it this way. Yes, God is invisible. He is in heaven. Also, when he said he is in heaven, he is re- reflecting on his majesty, his holiness, his power. Although he has no visible shape, nor bodily presence here upon the earth, as the idols have, which is a certain proof of their weakness. Because as from verse 4, he spoke about these idols, that they are so weak. Yet God has a certain and glorious place where he resides. He resides in heaven. He resides in the highest heaven, where he is clothed with infinite power, and majesty. He is the maker of heaven and earth. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He dwells in the highest heaven and overlooks all persons and everything on earth and overrules all. Though its outward circumstances may seem to give ground for the insult of the Gentiles, when his people are left or are afflicted or seem to be forsaken. But Israel knows that God is supremely exalted and omnipotent. If his people suffer, it's because he wills it, not because he lacks power to help him. That's why he said, he does whatever he pleases. If his people suffer, it's a permission from God, like how he gave permission to the devil to attack Job. He does whatever he pleases, and therefore what has been done is right, and we should be submissive to it. If God allows our suffering, then that is the right thing to be done right now, and we should accept it, and we should be submissive to From verse 4, he starts to speak about the vanity of the idols. After he he described God, our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases, then he starts to speak about the vanity of the idol. Their idols, their, the pagan or the heathen, uh, Gentiles in verse 2, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hand, they made it by their own hands. So the, the psalmist is asking, how can the Gentiles insult us saying, where is their God? What are their own gods? Let us see what are their own gods. Their own gods are made from silver and gold. Nothing but work of human hands. They made an idol, then worship. The gods they serve and worship are not in heaven like our God but made of substance that is dug out of the earth. Silver and gold. Maybe that is the greatest value that there is in these idols. 
the value of the silver or the gold. But by singling out these metals, silver and gold, actually the psalmist intensifies the score which he implies for such as were of inferior price. He said they are made just of silver and gold. What a big deal. And which had not the one element of value in their favor. When we bear in mind St. Paul saying that covetousness is idolatry, we shall be warned that we too may need this lesson. Their gods are silver and, and, and gold. Because sometimes we worship silver and gold. Love of money is worshiping silver and gold. Or silver and gold can represent worldly wisdom and hollow deceptive confidence which may be compared to these metals. Then he said in verse 5, they have mouth but they don't speak. Eyes they have but they don't see. They have ears but they don't hear. Noses they have but they don't smell. They have hands but they don't handle. Feet they have but they don't walk nor do they mutter through their throat. They are deprived of ordinary human senses though represented with organs of sense. So they have mouth, eyes, ear, but they out of function. They have the shape and figure of man and appear to have all the members and senses of man but they cannot teach their worshippers the idol cannot teach the idol worshippers as we read in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 19 woe to him who says to wood awake to silent stone arise it shall teach behold it is overlaid with gold and silver yet in it there is no breath at all they don't see they don't see their, the needs of the people and neglect the real work of souls. They don't hear, they cannot hear prayer offered to them. They have ears not for hearing the reading of the scripture, nor for hearing the cry of the poor and oppressed. They don't smell the sweet aroma of the sacrifices and the incense that is set before them. God, although he has no bodily form, but he can truly be said to speak, to see, to hear, and to smell. The idols were shaped with human body part, mouth, eyes, ears, noses. Yet they could not do with those body parts what their makers could. Their makers, those who make the idol. Men worship things so obviously below them. St. Augustine said, even these idols are below the animals. The animals, even the harmful animals among them, have a breath of life which the idols lack. And even a dead corpus of man used to be once alive, while idols never have been. So even the dead corpus of a man is better than an idol. They cannot make use of their hands to stretch them out 
and receive anything from their worshippers. Neither can they give anything to the worshippers. But our God receives and accepts sacrifices of his people. He receives our prayers, our praises, and opens his hand and liberally supplies to our needs, both in providence and grace. The idols don't use their hands to heal the wounds of the sick, for example, nor to lift off the burdens of the oppressors. They have feet, but they cannot go from place to place where they are to help those that call upon them. That's why in Isaiah 46 verse 7, they speak about the, the idol. They bear it on the shoulder. From its place, it shall not move. But our God, we read in Psalm 104, 3, walks on the wings of the wind. And he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Also, we read in Isaiah 40, from 18 to 20, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith offers praises with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution, choose a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not cut. These are the idols made of gold or silver or even piece of wood. They cannot produce any voice. They don't make anything in shape of the voice of man or even the voice of beasts. So the idols are blind, deaf, silent, senseless, motionless, powerless, and incapable. St. Augustine says, Even a beast does excel them, for unto this it is added, Nor do they mutter through their throat. Verse 7, nor do they mutter through their throat. Verse 8, those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Why? Why he said the idol makers like the idols and everyone who trusts the idols and worship them, he is like them. St. John Chrysostom says, the psalmist mocking them for utter folly and revealing them to be ridiculous. I mean, how could it be anything but ridiculous to be attached to a wooden image representing utter shamelessness? So the psalmist understood that when men worship things beneath them, it brings the person lower. Such gods, the idols, drag down their worshippers to the same level of sinless foolishness. They are equally vain and powerless and must perish, for their protectors are powerless. The protector of the people are powerless. The idols, these are powerless. So there is a close relation between the object of worship and the worshippers. When we worship the true God who reigns in righteousness, we become like God. When they worship idols, they become like idols. Those who make them are like idols because those 
the people who hear and see but make idols, this hearing and seeing, it is more in appearance than reality. They have eyes but they don't see. They have ears but they don't understand. They hear but they don't understand. They see but they don't perceive. Having eyes and not seeing God's truth, that's blindness. The things that only are worth seeing, the truth of God. Having ears but deaf to the word of God, don't hear the things that pertain to salvation. Isaiah said, and this was quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ, and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Based on this, from verse 9 to verse 11, he is calling to trust the true God. He said, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So knowing the folly of idolatry, should renew our trust in the true God and compel us to look to Him as our help and our shield. He starts by saying, O Israel, Israel, the house of Israel, includes the whole Jewish nation. This exhortation is founded in a great measure on what had been just said in regarding to the idols. These are the idols. So our God is worthy to be trusted and also he is our help and our shield. The idols had no power. There was no reason why they should be confided in. So the psalmist exhortation was not merely to trust the Lord, but to trust in him. Trust in him goes beyond regarding him trustworthy. Maybe trust the Lord means trust is trustworthy. But trust in him goes beyond this. Actually means place your trust, place your confidence, place your reliance in him and not in yourself or any idol. St. Peter in his heart, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's trusting in God. After he said, O Israel, he said, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. If God's people as a whole should trust in God, then those who are his appointed servant, the priests and the Levites, should trust in him even more. It was right and good for all the priesthood, all the house of Aaron, to regard God of Israel as their help and their shield. So after he spoke about the whole nation, he spoke about the priesthood house of Aaron. Because the priests were the leaders, teachers, and ought to be examples to others of a victorious confidence in God and a faithful obedience to Him. So the psalmist addressed first ordinary Israelites. Next, those who officially holy the priest. Finally, in verse 11, those actually holy 
and truly faithful Israelites. Oh, you who fear the Lord. There are some different interpretations what he meant by Oh, you who fear the Lord. One view is that it expresses Israel and Aaron, the laity and the priesthood of the Jewish nation, which make up the sum of all the true worshippers of the Lord. Some people said when he said, Oh, you who fear the Lord, means from among the laity and among the priests, from Israel and from house of Aaron. Another opinion extended the meaning to all devout persons of the Gentile origin who served the Lord faithfully, even though not under the law. Like Cornelius, for example, when you read about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, it says he was a fearer of the Lord. He fears the Lord of Israel. So maybe when he said, oh, you fear the Lord, maybe you are not Israelites or not Jewish, but from other nations, but you fear the Lord of Israel, like Ruth, for example. In the New Testament, such people are known as God-fearers, and the title may have come from such Old Testament passages. So the Old Testament writers recognized Gentiles who honored the God of Israel. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake. This group is called the fearers of the Lord. And thus it looks forward to the wider church of later days. So verse 11 can be a prophecy about the church of the Gentiles. We are Gentiles who now are fearing the Lord. Embracing, so fearer of the Lord embrace both the Jews and the Gentiles alike. Third interpretation, some believe that the convert Gentiles who followed the Jewish belief and were enrolled in Israel are alone intended. We call them proselyte. Proselyte, yes, they are Gentiles, but they worshipped God of Israel. Not only feared him, but worshipped, they became Jewish in their religion. The second interpretation agrees with the word of St. Peter. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him, fears the Lord, and works righteousness is accepted by him. And here it is noticeable how God is three times named as our help and our shield. In both these three verses, verse 9, 10, 11, is our help and our shield. Verse 12, the Lord has been mindful of us, who are in his mind. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. The psalmist drew upon God's past faithfulness and used it as confidence in God's future blessing. So he's saying, why you trust in God? Because if we reflect about what He has done with us in the past, we can see His faithfulness. We are in His mind. God has not forgotten us in the past. That's why He will not forget to bless us in the future. That's another reason why His people should trust in Him. The psalmist confirmed that God 
would be the helper and protector of those who trust in him. He places himself among those who received special help and protection from God. That's why he said, the Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. Then in same order, like he said, Israel, house of Aaron, fearer of God. In the same order, he confirmed his assertion of God, having blessed the house of Israel and the house of Aaron. According to St. Augustine, but in blessing of both of these, he will bless also those who fear the Lord. If God bless house of Israel and bless house of Aaron, then he is also blessing those who fear him. All who fear God, great and small, without any reference to greatness or littleness, whether of age, power, wisdom, or riches. That's what we read in verse 13. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Small and great in what? We don't know. Whether age, power, wisdom, riches, he said small and great. He blessed both small and great in the wide embrace of his love. As St. Paul said, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Then in verse 14 he said, May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. Wonderful verse. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. This was the original blessing bestowed on Abraham. God gave it to Abraham. And this blessing is continually repeated in the Old Testament. Also it is emphasized by Isaiah. In giving this blessing to those who fear the, and trust the Lord, the Psalms recognized God as the true source of such a blessing, extending even to the children, to the next generation, to the future. Verse 15, May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth he has given to the children of men. So he is saying, if God made heaven and earth, then actually he can bless us. Heaven now are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. He that made heaven and earth can doubtless make those who trust in him blessed. God is exalted above the idols of the nations. He alone has made heaven and earth. And the reference to heaven and earth may be found in the blessing of Isaac to Jacob. When Isaac blessed Jacob, what did he say? Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of earth, and plenty of grain and wine. So perhaps after the denunciation of idols in the first part of the psalm from verse 4 to 8, it is probable that the title of maker of heaven and earth is here gave, given to the Lord to differentiate God from the false gods of the Gentiles. 
The first God of the Gentiles are made by men. But God made heaven and earth. As Jeremiah said in teaching Israel, Thus you shall say to them, The gods that have not made the heaven and the earth shall perish from earth and from under these heavens. The blessing has come in a fuller sense upon the true Israel, in that God has increased it more and more, raising up children to Abraham from the dead stones of the Gentile. How God actually blessed Israel more and more. As the Lord said, don't think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What are these stones? We are the Gentiles because we have hearts of stone. So God transformed our hearts of stone into heart of flesh and he made us children to God and children to Abraham. Children in true spiritual descent. So the psalmist, after recognizing God's authority as creator over both heaven and earth, now acknowledge God's continuing dominion over heaven because he said in verse 3 our God is in heaven that's why he said the heaven is God's heaven he has made it for his own dwelling place he is the God of heaven the supreme heaven belongs extremely to God and to the angels who minister unto God but the earth with the elements that surround it has given to the children of men for their habitation. And for such a splendid portion of the universe, man should constantly return thanks to God as long as they live and enjoy the fruits of that earth. Every day we should actually give thanks to God for giving us the earth and the blessings of the earth. Though earth is given by God to the children of men, yet he has a better country even heaven to give to such as will seek it in, in the eternal life, who are sons of God, nor mere children of men, and who can win heaven by exchanging earth for it. If we become children of God through baptism and through our good deeds, then God promised us to give us the inheritance of the heaven. St. Augustine comments on verse 16 and says, Who has elevated the mind of some saints to such a height that they become teachable by no man but by God himself, in comparison of which heaven, whatever is discerned with carnal eyes, is to be called earth. So when our minds are set on heavenly all the time, then these people are called heaven, but those who are still living under their carnal eyes, they are called earth. That's what St. Augustine is saying. Last two verses, verse 17 and 18. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down in silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore praise the Lord. Those who are dead cannot praise God, cannot worship Him. This should be done while we are in the land of the living, while we are still alive. Death puts an end 
to our glorifying God in this world, this world of trial and conflict. This opportunity, like all other opportunities, will be cut off in the grave. And hence, we should be faithful in this duty and should benefit ourselves from this privilege while life lasts. Because when we die, we cannot praise God. Their voice is no longer heard among the living, among the living, those who are dead. Whatever heavenly praise they may join, they are absent from an earthly one, and their praise will no longer testify to those who resist and reject the true God. We say in the Gregorian liturgy, you give us the praises of the seraphim, we can join the heavenly in their praises, but the dead cannot. This praise cannot be uttered by those who reject and resist the true God. The grave is a land of darkness and silence where there is no work. That's why he said, those who go down into silence. St. John Chrysostom says, he calls the dead not those who come to the end of their time, but those who have died in godlessness or who have become rotten in sin. So then John Chrysostom want to explain when he said the dead do not praise the Lord. But we know St. Mary, St. George, St. Mary of Egypt, St. Anthony, they are dead physically, but they are praising God. So how can we understand that the dead don't praise the Lord? So St. John Chrysostom said the dead here, not the righteous, not those who died physically, but those who died in godlessness or they still alive on earth but have become rotten in sin. So applying the passage to the Christian under the New Testament, the heaven of heavens means that supreme part of heaven where the children of God reside. As St. Paul said, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, the body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. That house God chose for himself, but the earth, this visible world, has given to the children of men as distinguished from the children of God. That's why he said he gives the earth to the children of men. Because the children of God, even if they are living here on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. That's why he said the earth he has given to the children of men. Children of men are the earthly people. But we, the children of God, although we live here on earth, but God gave us the heaven as inheritance. That's why St. Paul in Philippians said our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, the dead do not praise the Lord. The dead by their sins, not physically dead. Those who, though living bodily, still they are alive, but they are spiritually dead. They will not praise God. For God is not the God of dead, but God of the living, as God said to Moses in the burning bush. Nor any who go down into silence, those who have died in their sins, and have gone to eternal punishment in silence because their mouth is silent to praise God. 
if the praise is to last forevermore, then it does extend into the world to come. That's why he said, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Forevermore means even after we die, the children of God, after they die, they will bless God in the paradise of joy. So this means the praise extend into the world to come. So in the spirit of faith, God's people see no limit to the continuance of their existence or to their tribute of praise. So this does not end our life. We exist even after we die, we'll be living in the paradise. And as we praise God here, we'll continue to praise Him there. Those who live the life of grace shall praise Him from this time forth, beginning at once in faith, good works, holiness, and persevering to the very end, to that other life of glory, where for even evermore the unceasing praise of the conquerors ascend to their King God. So we'll start from now praising God, praising God not only by our mouth, but by our faith, good work, holiness, and we'll persevere to the very end, and after we die, the praise will continue in the life of glory, where actually those who are conquerors will continue to praise the King of glory. So the grief is indeed before us all, but so also the heaven in front of us all. If we belong to those who truly fear the Lord and who sincerely worship God through Jesus Christ, then heaven belongs to us, not the grief. And he concluded by Alleluia. Praise the Lord means Alleluia, because Hallelu means praise. Ya Yahweh, Jehovah. So Hallelujah means praise the Lord. This actually concludes Psalm 115. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.